You're listening to Strings Attached. I'm Asaf Maoz. Today, I have a very special episode for you. After the last episode with Andra Schiff, I got a very beautiful message from a fellow podcaster who invited me to record an episode together. Two hosts talking together. I've never done this before, but I can tell you that I think I made a new friend. She's the host of the podcast The Conscious Artist, and you will get to know her in a second. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Facebook so you never miss an episode. Oh, very important. I left you a message at the end of the episode. Yalla, let's start. Today is a very special episode. I am joined by the host of the Strings Attached podcast, violinist Asaf Maus, and we are here to give you an exclusive, collaborative, behind-the-scenes interview of each other so you can get to know your hosts. So Asaf, welcome to the Conscious Artist podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very happy that we get to do this joint podcast, Pallavi, and I'm introducing you to my listeners, the host of the Conscious Artist podcast. And I, I must say, I've listened to some of your episodes and I loved it. And I love your approach of trying to help people realize and maybe understand a bit the behind the scenes of what it means to be an artist, a musician. Thank you so much. I also love your podcast and I particularly loved your episode with Sir Andra Schiff. He's actually been a mentor of mine for a while and it was just very, very special for me to hear this really deeply personal interview with him. So thank you for taking the time to interview him. I know he's super busy, but that was a very special episode for me to listen to as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm very, I feel very lucky. So how about we start by simple questions about, could you introduce yourself to the listeners who have never met you before? I would love to. So for all of you strings attached audience, my name is Pallavi Mahidara. I am a concert pianist, Indian American concert pianist, and host of the Conscious Artist Podcast. And this podcast is a safe space for conversations around mental health awareness for musicians, artists, and all human beings. And it has been a big passion project of mine for the last year and a half, and I'm excited to see how it keeps developing. Nice. I love it. I love the term safe space. I think it's really important because in our industry, There's a lot, and I know we're going to talk about some stuff today, but there's a lot of things that I think people don't realize how much it affects our daily life and how we feel on stage with our instruments. But before we get into that, I would love for you to introduce yourself for my listeners. So hi, everyone. My name is Asaf Maoz. I'm a violinist most of my life. I am an Israeli born, but my parents are a mix and a hybrid. And I'm hosting two podcasts, one in Hebrew and one in English, Strings Attached. And in the past few years, I've been sort of a dreamer. I dream and I bring to life really interesting ideas with my string quartet. And hopefully we'll keep dreaming and growing with the coming years. I love this. And I do want to talk about um, our heritage because I believe we share some Indian roots. Could you tell us more about that, please? Do you remember this Michael Jackson song, Black and White? So it kind of describes my parents. <laughs> my mom is born in India and my father is born in Poland. And they both immigrated to Israel and they met here. So I'm kind of a hybrid, you would say, a mix of black and white, which I love. And to be frank, when they met in the late 70s, 
it was very unusual for dark-skinned women to date a white man. And so they had to go through a few hoops in order to show the world that, you know, this relationship has some merit. And actually, they raised three wonderful kids. So I'm very happy that they overcame this. I don't want to say racism, but very unpleasant and difficult beginning. Wow, that's really beautiful. And I can imagine that it was difficult, especially at that time. I think the need for diversity is is still such a big factor that's coming into play in every single field. And I'm curious to know, did you face any sort of discrimination or even blatant racism or even micro-racism growing up? You know, I'm trying to be very honest, and I would say no. I think that I'm very lucky to have been in a society or an environment that didn't care so much about the way I look. When I was a kid, I was very smart. So I, 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 I did well in school. So I think, I don't know for sure, but I think most kids loved me or liked me at least. So somehow it worked. As a grown-up, I did face some racism, but nothing that made me rethink the way I behave or change my behavior and I'm I feel very fortunate for that. How about you? I mean, I mean, you have uh, Indian heritage and and you grew up in in the states. What's it like to be a woman of color in the states? Oof. <laughs> well, it's certainly evolved over the course of my life so far. I mean, when I was growing up, I was I was a brown kid in the 90s growing up in Chicago. I think I was probably the only Indian in my class, or at least one of very, very few. And I remember really trying to assimilate, really trying to hide my Indian heritage. And I'm fully Indian, by the way, but I was born and raised in the States. My parents came over to the US from India in the early 80s to do their doctorates and then ended up staying and having me and my sister. And it was definitely a challenge because I you know, diversity was not celebrated at that time. So I wanted to be like the white kids. I wanted to wear all the same kind of clothes and fit all the fashionable trends like chain belts and these very strange 90s trends that happened. <laughs> but I think I saw this change with most kids from my generation that were Indian American. A lot of us either tried to hide our culture and our heritage and we tried to act and behave as sort of Western and white as possible. Or, for example, some of the, especially the male Indian American students, I remember in high school, they wouldn't even talk to the Indian girls. They would only talk to the white girls. And then they went to college and suddenly discovered their Indian roots. And I think this simply just ties into the fact that we have no clue who we are when we're kids and when we're teenagers, and we're slowly discovering ourselves when we get to college, and even that's a complete disaster. And I would say I've only really found myself in my 30s. So <laughs> it's been quite an evolution. You, you're talking about growing up, but you have to add this aspect of playing the piano. I'm sure people treated you as a nerd, you know, practicing at home the piano. Do you remember the, the moment that piano became the thing you want to do as a child or a teenager, the moment that you chose to become a pianist? Very much so. It was actually a very formative experience for me. I was 10 years old 
and actually participating as a violinist in an orchestra camp. I used to play violin. I played from the ages of six to 14, and I was quite serious about the violin, but piano was always my first instrument, which I started at three. And when I was 10, I was participating in the Disney's Young Musician Symphony Orchestra, which was a summer camp sponsored by Disney and held in different locations. And that year in particular, this was 1998, and I was 10 going on 11. And I mean, every time I tell this story, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so intense and so incredibly transformative. But I was performing as a violinist in the orchestra. And on the third day of camp, the original piano soloist for a Mozart concerto with the orchestra slipped while playing frisbee and broke his wrist. And the director of the camp knew that I was a pianist first and foremost and asked if I would substitute. Mind you, I was 10. Not only had I not played Mozart Concerto Number 21, I had not even heard it. <laughs> I terrified, somehow agreed. And within two days, I actually managed to learn and memorize. It was the third movement of the concerto. So I learned and memorized the third movement of the concerto and less than a week later performed it with the orchestra at the Ravinia Festival in Chicago. Wow in front of thousands of people, televised nationally. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I realized in that moment, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. <laughs> It's quite a story. <laughs> I was asking a question without even expecting such a beautiful answer. Thank you. Well, I have to ask you, I want to know about how violin came into your life and all the avenues and paths that it's taken for you to come to where you are today. It's kind of funny because my parents, we mentioned my parents before, my, my parents have nothing to do with music. And yet they wanted me at the age of five to play an instrument in order to improve my coordination, imagination, whatnot. And they took me to the conservatory near home and some older lady did some tests and exams with me. And she said, the kid is very talented. He shouldn't play the piano. He should play the violin. And somehow violin stuck you know it stayed with me but unlike you I think my my point of making the violin a major I don't know theme in my life was when I was about 14 or 15 I think I was in high school and I was thinking to myself I really want to become a great soloist I really want to stand out out of the sea of the world violinists and be the best soloist out there and I remember that moment because at that moment I started practicing seriously. I started investing time and effort to be better. Now comes the deviation from the stories that I told myself that by the age of 21, I'm going to be the best soloist in the world. And that didn't happen. So I gave myself an extension to 25 and then 27 and then 31 and it never happened. And I think that when I was in the early, my early 30s, I realized it's not really a dream of mine. It's a dream that was, I don't want to say imposed, but brought upon me by the surroundings that I grew up in, that you have to excel. You have to be the best violinist in order to prove that you are good. But it was never my own dream. And I'm so happy that I had this moment of realizing that it's not my dream, because then I, was, I could open up and start dreaming new ideas for myself. 
playing in a quartet, getting a job in an orchestra, doing things that make me, Asaf, happy and not what I think is expected of me. I love this so much and I relate a lot. <laughs> I also had this vision in mind. I will say that things have generally worked in some ways very well for me. I was very fortunate to study with some of the best teachers in high school and then attending some of the best schools with the Curtis Institute of Music, with the Reina Sofia School in Madrid, with Hans Eisler in Berlin. And after a lot of trial and error with competitions, managed to have success in the Geneva International Competition back in 2014. But I also had this whole sort of life plan in mind When I went to college, when I went to Curtis, I had this idea that, okay, by the time I graduate, I'll have this kind of career and then I'll, I don't know, get married and have two kids before I'm 30. And then I'll have this whole kind of life set out. And let me tell you, nothing has gone in my life according to plan. <laughs> and you know, there's that saying, like, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much been my life. <laughs> But I, I really relate because I've also, through the years, started to understand what is it that makes me happy. And I always said, like from the time that I was a kid and serious about music, I've always said, I don't care about being rich or famous. I want to be a well-respected musician. I want to be a well-respected artist. And I think that's kind of set the tone for the kind of career and trajectory that I've wanted and that I've had, because it's literally been grain of sand by grain of sand, brick by brick. And it is the work that I have put in day after day. I actually have had very great success so far in my life with contacts, concerts, developing relations with people. I've actually been self-managing for a very long time. And most people have no idea that I self-manage because it doesn't look like that. And what I love about it the most is that I get to develop direct relations with people because actually that's one of the most important things to me. It's human connection. It's the ability to be able to connect with someone, even if it's just for five minutes, but on a truly deep personal level. And even something like this, I mean, you and I have not had the fortune of meeting in person yet, but I know that by the end of this conversation, I'm going to feel like you're a friend. <laughs> and like, that's so special, but it does also come with its challenges. I have to ask you though, you're talking about self-managing, which, which I appreciate very much because I've done a lot of that as well. But there is something about being a pianist that is very lonesome. You're practicing alone in the room. You many times play recitals by yourself. And also this self-managing means that you have to do all your emails, invoices, and whatnot, tour managing. How do you deal with this loneliness? How do you deal with this being Pallavi by, by herself so many hours or so many days a year? That's a very good question. And I will say that over the last couple of years, since COVID, I had um, some big changes that happened in my personal life. And it led me to therapy, which was one of the best decisions of my life, which transformed the way that I approach existing in this world. And I have found for the first time in my life, the path from loneliness to solitude. I don't know what are the words in Hebrew and if it's one word or two words, but in English, we have two separate words to define the sensation of feeling lonely in a sad way 
and being at peace by yourself. This has been extremely transformative for me because I do spend a lot of time alone. You're right. I live alone. I practice alone. I travel alone. I perform often alone. And yes, then doing all of all of the work by myself as well. I would say that my challenge is no longer feeling lonely because I am surrounded in my life by so many wonderful friends and my family. And I feel so supported and so loved. And my life is full and it's rich and it's full and rich because I've created that life for myself. But there's also been a huge realization for me that I would much rather be at peace in my solitude than lonely with someone else. Because I think that's one of the most painful feelings to experience. That's a very poetic way to put it. I like it. <laughs> well, I know that wasn't quite your question, but it was, it's been part of my journey. And realizing that I would much, much rather find that solitude. Because you know what? At the end of the day, we're born alone and we very likely will die alone at some point. I mean, it's unlikely that everyone that we love is just going to end with us, right? So, <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, I understand. And I actually, I, the reason I ask it is because I find that as musicians, we are trained many hours of many years to be alone. And you are trained to seek for the answers by yourself in a practice room. And then maybe like tennis players, we are on the stage or on court, with our own thoughts and we have to overcome those thoughts, fears. And I find that my, for myself, and I was talking about being a soloist before, one of the things that I love about being a violinist is that many times the solution for my own loneliness or fear of my own thoughts is to actually play with others. I have this haven to, to escape to that it's called an orchestra or a chamber group. But with the time, and also when I started this podcast, I realized that I'm doing a lot by myself. And for me, my main questions for, for myself are, can I find someone to take this path with me professionally? I'm very happy with my family life. I have no, no desire to change anything. But professionally, can I find someone that will improve me as a host, as a musician, or bring new ideas? That was very difficult for me. Um, to find a non-musical partner, or could be a musician, doesn't matter, that will improve my creative ideas and creative path. Thank you so much for sharing this. I actually, I understand very well. For that reason, chamber music is, I think, my, my absolute favorite form of music making. And I'm curious to know, you said you play both in an orchestra and a string quartet. Have you experienced challenges in either of those settings, because while it's so fruitful to play chamber music and to play in an orchestra and to make music with others, it can also come, of course, with its challenges, especially in a string quartet. Funny you're asking that because preparing for this conversation of ours, I shared this question with my followers online and I asked them, what is for them their biggest professional fear? And I got some really interesting answers. And one of them, which touched me really in, in, in my core, was I'm afraid to lose my passion. Wow. And I've been very fortunate to, to play in the Israel Philharmonic for the past 10 years. And I remember vividly my first day playing in orchestra. And, you know, with the time, I don't say that I'm losing my passion, but it's not the same excitement coming to play, sit on stage, open the folder and see what we're playing today. 
but it's not the same. And I've always wondered, because since I have a tenure, I could play there for the next, I don't know, foreseeable future. And I would end up playing in the orchestra before I retire about 40 years. And just the thought of working in the same place, and I'm very careful with saying manufacturing music, because we play so many concerts in a season. So playing music and, and somehow miraculously not losing my passion. So for me, I found my solace, my happiness in the quartet, because playing in the string quartet is very different. You have to be in top shape, top form. You cannot show up unprepared and you actually have an input. You can say, you can verbalize your musical thoughts, your ideas, and and you expect other people to do the same. And for me... It was kind of a, I don't know, it, I don't want to say saved me, but it helped so much to actually keep my passion in the orchestra until now. This is so beautiful. And I think I, I, think I do understand because, I mean, variety is what keeps things fresh, right? It's the same thing with when we play repertoire. If we play only Beethoven for one year, eventually we're going to get tired of his works, no matter how great they are, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's important to have a variety in your life and to find ways to create that freshness. If, for example, you do play in an orchestra and that is someone's only job, you know, how can you find ways to keep that freshness and spontaneity alive. I think it's a big challenge. I must tell you that many of my colleagues, or I see colleagues in different orchestras, they do become office workers. You know, they come, Mm. they report their notes on time, in tune, and they go home and they forget about work, orchestra. They don't care so much anymore. They just do the job. And I'm very hopeful that I would never call going to the orchestra I'm going to work. Mm. I've never done it before, and I'm really trying hard not to say it ever. about this COVID time and how it changed your mental thinking, was it also the trigger to start your podcast? Maybe talking about fears, dealing with myself? Was this the the trigger to start your podcast? Partly, yes. The podcast came out of a big life event that changed the course of my life. and, And it ended up becoming a healing project that I didn't know I needed. Mental health was something that I'd already been focusing on for some time with my students, with myself in the way that I approached practicing mindfulness and awareness and not just, you know, practicing on autopilot and with the way I would work with my students to take care of their well-being, to talk to them about their anxieties and their fears and their worries and help them navigate their stress and those insecurities. And I was already doing some workshops about mental health in in different summer programs and schools and things like this. And then somebody suggested to me one day, why don't you do a podcast? And I mean, I laughed because I thought, yeah, me, a podcast, like who's going to listen? 
And then within two weeks, I had written about 35 episodes worth of content, you know, just topics. I, I don't script my episodes, but just ideas about what I wanted to cover. And I realized, okay, actually, I think I'm really passionate about this. And maybe I actually have something to say, and maybe I can do this. And I, I've I've said this before, but I don't feel that I have any skill or talent to improvise or compose at the piano, but I've learned that I do have some improvisation and composition skills. Mm. They're just manifesting in a different avenue of my life because, you know, when I'm creating content for a topic, that's kind of composing. And when I'm having these conversations with my guests, which are unscripted, it's like improvising. So I'm very proud to discover this new sort of talent and skill. Um, but this, this is sort of how the podcast came to be. And I am only desiring to continue developing it and expand it even more in many different ways. So as I said, like it's, it's been a really big healing project for me that I wasn't even aware it was going to come. And it's been also transformative to, to my playing because it's it's grown a whole new aspect of my being as a human and as an artist so i'm very thankful for that i must ask you performing artists we thrive on applause do you crave do you seek for your listeners approval comments or it, i mean you started as, as something for yourself as a therapeutic process is it something now that you you can do go on without knowing who your listeners are if they like it or not or do you seek that as well that's actually a very interesting question i didn't quite start it for myself in the sense that i do it purely with pleasure but i wanted to give back to the music community in some way and I mean, I love getting to perform because it's my way of sharing my inner world with others and being able to connect with other human beings without words through like this beautiful, intangible art form. And I love teaching because I feel it a responsibility of mine as an artist to pass down the information that I have been fortunate enough to receive from my great masters and teachers to the next generation. And I just felt like this was yet another way that I could make a small difference in our industry and give back to our community. And so I do it with great pleasure and I do it with great joy and I'm very passionate about it. I mean, I, I do everything myself. I record the episodes, I edit them, I upload them, I do all the, you know, the marketing for them. And I do it with great, great pride and great pleasure. It's very interesting that you ask this question because with the podcast, the short answer is no. I don't feel this need for audience approval because somehow the podcast is like a separate entity, even though it's me, it's a separate entity where I do tend to feel that need of approval is as a pianist. And that has like, that's been very interesting for me to also see how I deal with things regarding the podcast, which is sort of very detached in a good way, detached from the outcome, like not emotionally dependent on the approval of others, which I think is a very good thing because that's, you know, literally what I'm talking about half the time on the podcast <laughs> is not seeking external validation, <laughs> but I'm still trying to apply it with piano. You know, I want to tell you a story because 
uh, many times in my podcast, I like to tell a story about myself and try to figure out what have I or can we learn from it. When I was about 20 years old, 21, I was playing in a string quartet in a young musician's summer camp, but it was my permanent quartet. And in this uh, summer camp, we decided that I would switch from second violin to first violin. And we played a Haydn quartet and we worked on it for two weeks. And then we performed it in the final concert of the camp. And I loved it. I loved every moment of it. My group liked it because we did things differently. And we finished the, the concert and two of the professors that were there, very known international musicians, came to me and they said, you know, this was not good. You didn't play well. The quartet didn't sound good. Maybe you should rethink your path as a professional musician. Mind you, I was 20 years old or 19. I can't remember exactly. And two musicians that I admire are telling you, you know, maybe this is not the right way for you. Oh my goodness. And why am I telling this? Because you, you were talking about approval, you know, we are seeking approval. And of course you're seeking an approval from, from well-known musicians. And I was devastated. And for a few weeks or a month, I, I was crying and I was thinking to myself, I've been doing this for so many years now. Should I do something different? Should I pick a different instrument, a different, a different path? And then came this tenacious drive in my brain that's, that said, you've got to prove them wrong. This is not about them. It's about mm -hmm. you. And this is, I think for me, was a very interesting moment of trying to stop seeking outside approval and going my way. You might say, you know, you didn't do well or whatever. It's okay. It's your, you're entitled for this opinion. But I, Asaf, for myself, decided that I'm going to win this idea of I can play the violin. I can become a great musician. And from that moment on, I started practicing, but in a very conscious and very, how to say, uh, directed way of thinking of, I need to improve, I need to be better, I need to do better. In the beginning, yes, it was to prove them wrong. But afterwards, it became to prove that I can do it for myself, for my own. So I asked you on purpose this question about the approval, because I think that many times, even not as musicians, we seek the approval of our family, our friends, our, the society. But many times, do we really need this approval? Do we need this extra like on the post? Or is it okay to just make sure that you are improving, that you are creating, that you're doing something that makes you a better person or more fulfilled? I don't know. What, what, whatever is your own goal. I knew there was a reason that we connected. <laughs> I really, oh, I, I love this. Thank you for sharing this with us. I agree with you in your premise and your concept, and I relate to your story a lot in the sense that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be seeking external validation because you know what? Music and art are subjective. There are some people that are going to love you and some people that will not care what you have to say whether it's with your voice or with your instrument. And when we aim for universal approval, we will forever be disappointed. Just like you cannot 
be in a romantic relationship with every single person you meet because you don't click mm -hmm. with every person you meet, right? Or you cannot be friends with every person you meet because you don't click with every person you meet. In the same way, why would, why should we expect that our music will click with every single person that hears us? It, it's not humanly possible. And that's okay. I say this all the time, like we all have something to offer and that's what communities are for. And that's what, I, I don't know, that's, that's where we, where we develop that connection with other human beings that, that relate with us. And, and I, this is not to say that we should not interact with people that don't agree with us because that would, I think, be even fatal for our growth. It's necessary to have disapproval and to have dislikes in order to be able to look in the mirror and say, hey, is this something I want to improve or does this not have to do with me? Is this about someone else? You know, when somebody says something to you, is this about them or is this about me? And even just being able to ask those questions is, I think, sort of on the right path for self-reflection and therefore growth. Because ultimately, what's the point of playing this incredible music if we're not doing it because we love it and because we want to learn something, right? Right. So can I ask you a question? Bouncing off this sentiment, you're a teacher and, and you have accomplished quite a lot. But I'm curious, and I ask it often in my podcast, what is the advice that you wish you would have gotten through your time, through your days of, of learning or even as an adult? Um, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure I heard this advice at some point. I'm sure someone said this advice to me at some point, but I don't think I really heard it until I went through my own experiences that led me to finally hearing what was transformative. But I would say finding what is important for oneself and focusing on that, what truly speaks to you as an individual, what are your values? This is something, this, this is what I've learned that when I act from my values as a human being, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says. When I play from my values as an artist, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says. And I think even discovering what your values are and what's important to you takes time. And also just not to be in a rush, <laughs> <laughs> to grow up, to achieve something. You know, I, it's, it's a societal pressure and societal expectation to have your life figured out by the time you're 18 mm. or 21 or 25 or 30. And I mean, my goodness, I'm in my mid thirties and I have no idea what's going to happen in a year. That's great. And it's great. And for the first time in my life, I can say that I'm not terrified of that, but I'm actually excited to discover what will happen. By the way, I have to say, this is this is the problem when two hosts host an episode because I want to ask you so many questions, but you're doing such a great <laughs> job of asking me questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some okay, stuff. Bro. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about playing in an orchestra, finding your joy and sort of inspiration within a string quartet setting. What have been for you your defining moments that helped you to realize what your path is, what your purpose is, what you're aiming for in this life? It can be as a human being and as an artist. Oh, that's a fantastic question. I don't know if I, I can answer that. Um, let me put it this way. I was brought to think most of my life 
that an orchestra job is the best thing for me. You will have stability and you will enjoy it and it will last for many years. And I'm very fortunate to have won my position in the Israel Philharmonic. It's one of the best orchestras in the world. And I'm, I'm saying it truly, I feel fortunate. But nobody told me that playing over 100 concerts a year can be very tiring and repeating the same pieces over and over again can be tiring. And sometimes you get to play with not the best conductors. Could be not so much fun. And then I realized with the time that getting paid by the Israel Philharmonic is sort of a stipend. It allows me to do whatever I want beside or next to my time in the orchestra. And maybe this is, to your question, my purpose or my mission. My mission, I think, is to break this barrier between the audience and the stage. I find many times that when I walk on stage, especially in the orchestra, nobody knows who Asaf is. You have in front of you about 90 or 100 musicians sitting on stage, and nobody even talks to me and, and tells me, you know, I like this very much, or I didn't like it. I, I didn't feel any connection with the piece. So when I moved to the quartet, which I'm doing in the same time as the orchestra, I always make sure that we talk to the audience. I always make sure that we explain a few words about why we chose this and that piece. And this is also the main reason why I started my podcast. I love breaking this wall, this invisible wall between me, the performer, and me, the person, and the audience. People like to know us. They like to say, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. I didn't know that. And, and for, if, if I want to demonstrate this in, in my best words, it's not even mine. A few months ago, I got a message from a listener, and she wrote to me, by chance, I happened to listen to your podcast, and I must tell you this, I'm a mother of three, All, all three of them are musicians, uh, different ages. And for the first time, I realized that I can understand their world through your podcast, which for me was the biggest compliment I could have gotten. It means I managed somehow miraculously to help her understand the life of her kids. So if I could do that, simplify or break this distance between us, the noble musicians and the audience. For now, I'm super happy with it. I am sitting here and smiling <laughs> with this story. Thank you so much for sharing this. I, I wouldn't say it's my purpose, but it's like my life purpose, but it is something that I value so dearly and so highly as an artist is breaking down that wall. I told you that I knew there was a reason we connected. <laughs> I do the same thing. I love talking to my audience. I absolutely love getting to share a little bit of what makes this music speak to me and make my heart sing or or break or or glow or or anything. And I think it's also like a great way for them to get to know me, Pallavi, the human, not just me, Pallavi, the pianist or the artist. Because, you know, we when we're playing, we obviously are not speaking. And I'm, I can probably put money on the table to say that you, Asaf, when you're speaking is not the same as you, Asaf, when you're playing. No, for sure not. Exactly. And so this gives them a chance to also see who is the artist. And that allows them to connect with us 
on a deeper level, I think. You know, some people say that maybe it's, um, you know, that that level of mystery with, oh, who is this artist? Who is this great master? And we don't know what the behind the scenes are like, and we don't know what is their personality, and that's what makes them so great. But I don't know. I mean, for me, life is short and lonely enough in certain circumstances. The more you can connect with people, I feel the richer the experiences. So thank you. Thank you for saying this, for sharing this. And and yes, with the podcast, I mean, I actually don't even think about it that way, but it's true. The podcast is also a way for me to get to connect with, with my listeners. And you know, you were asking earlier if I feel the need or or I seek my listeners' approval in the sense that I want to, you know, talk about things that they'll be interested in or that are helpful for them or that resonate with them to that extent sure but if people you know are going to like me Pallavi because I have this podcast I mean no but of course when somebody comes to me or writes to me and says that episode really moved me or really spoke to me or I felt so seen and heard by what you spoke about like that for me is again why I'm doing it mm-hmm. because I want. That's why I said in the beginning, it's a safe space. I want to help people feel seen and heard and have their experiences represented by any of the stories that they might hear. So, as you said, we like to ask questions. So, how about we do a few short questions, short answers, which we could both answer. This, I mean, same question goes for both ways. What do you think about that? Love it. Let's do it. Okay, let me uh, start with a simple question. What's your biggest dream? Musically or in life? Um, I don't care. Musically, one day to play with the Berlin Philharmonic. Ooh, nice. As a human, to find peace and balance from within. Mm. How about you? Same question. Well, in life, I... it's very difficult to say in a short answer, but... Recently, I found myself dealing with anxiety. And I would love, as you said, to find inner peace to deal with these anxieties. And professionally, it's my dream now for the past few months to start a festival where I can fulfill some of my totally crazy musical ideas and to bring many people to somehow enjoy it together. I don't know how and when, but hopefully this will happen. I swear I'm not just saying this. I was literally telling my sister the same thing today that I've been thinking about this for a while, that I would like to start a festival. Do you want to do something <laughs> together? Yeah, let's do that. I think I, we can, you know, overcome the distance and, and do something in between um, Tel Aviv and Madrid. I don't know, somewhere in in one of the islands in, in, in Greece. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> I love this. Told you that. Told you that there was exactly. a reason we connected. Okay. I'm going to ask you um, a question. What does music mean to you? Oh, I love music. I, at some point, I thought I liked it less because I, I played way too many concerts in a season. I love it so much that I find myself thinking about how to 
compose musical programs together that will make me and the audience happy. So I'm, I'm just constantly thinking about how to put music together in a way that will make as many people as possible happy or, in this case, smile or cry, whatever the emotions that they're seeking at that moment. Love that. I also love programming, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> What about you? What's music for you? Um, music is something that I cannot live without. And it's always been like that. And I, I really believe that music is one of the purest forms of communication and is an exchange of energy through which like both artist and audience experience this intangible and magical connection. So it is just a way for me to, I don't know, even for myself to be like taken to this higher level. Like I know that there are parts of me that will forever remain hidden because I don't know how to express those parts of me with words. And they only come out through music and through the piano. You know, we're talking for a very long time about music, but my last question is maybe non-musical. Um, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do besides music? We are definitely super connected. I was going to ask you, what's your favorite food? <laughs> Ooh, so, so keep that in mind and, and I will come back to you. So, you know, I was always, I felt like, I was always that kid that didn't have any hobbies because I don't have a job, right? I don't consider it a job. I do what I love. It's a passion. So I don't feel the need to take myself away from the routine and the monotony of work. So yeah, I've like just growing up, never really had hobbies, maybe other than reading or I don't know, maybe watching movies sometimes. I wouldn't really call those hobbies so much. I do say often, and I say it as a joke, but also not really, if eating could be a hobby, that would be my Ooh. hobby because I really nice. love food. I'm like such a foodie, but I will say that- what, what, Wait, wait, wait. What kind of food though? I mean, anything that tastes good. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of a food snob, but just because I love food so much, but I will say I have developed a new hobby in the last year, which has been kickboxing. Ooh, interesting. It's been very fun. I'm obviously very careful and I have a good instructor and I've been learning the technique really well so that I don't damage my hands or my wrists. But I, I, what I love about it, besides the fact that It allows me to just turn off my brain for that, you know, 45 minutes or an hour that I'm in class. But I've also loved learning that I can apply technique that I use at the piano to boxing. That's been really cool. Nice. How about you? Hobbies and favorite food. Okay, easy. Favorite food by far. I'm a foodie as you, but everyone who knows me knows that I can eat ice cream endlessly. <laughs> I could have ice cream three times a day and I would not stop. But the thing that I love really about being a musician is that I get to travel the world quite a lot. So like you very much, I like trying good food in different places around the world and I'm enjoying every moment of it. And sometimes I spend a bit too much money on food and eating out, but I love collecting those experiences. I'm sorry. I'm laughing so much because that's exactly what I do. <laughs> My expenses are only ever food. <laughs> exactly. There you go. You know, once we went on, on tour with orchestra to South America, and I think three or four of the top restaurants in the world are in Peru, in Lima. And me and two, three of my friends, we went to all of them 
in three days. And then we went on to Colombia to another Michelin restaurant. And, and then we went on to Argentina for another fantastic restaurant. And for two weeks, basically what we did was fine dining and spending all our per diem on food. That was amazing tour. <laughs> amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and hobbies? Well, my hobby, um, I'm doing quite a lot. So I find that my biggest hobby is actually sit on the couch and watch Netflix. But if I'm very honest, I live five minutes drive from the, from the sea, from the beach. And I love driving there whenever I can and just walk there and, and reset my mind. Have some, for me, the, the, the sea is kind of a peaceful zone. I go there whenever I can just to regroup. And many times I jump into the water, even if they're freezing cold. And uh, yeah, just go there, reset, come back. Oh, I love it. Love it so much. Water is so healing. The sea is so healing. And I think it's so beautiful that you use that also as a way to reset your mind. It's not only that you love going there, but it also helps to cleanse your mind and maybe even your soul in a way. Exactly. Especially my soul. I love it. This was so fun. I like. I feel that we need to meet in person very soon because, I don't know, maybe it's our Indian connection, but I really relate to you. Same here. And, and while we were talking, I'm thinking, you know, maybe this is the purpose of this podcast, this episode is one day in the near future, we'll meet, make some music together, eat some fantastic food. And then maybe this would be the continuum of this episode would be for me an amazing achievement. And then start a festival together. Exactly. Love it. Which you will manage because, uh, you know, you're doing everything by yourself. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Asaf, thank you so much for joining me and my listeners on The Conscious Artist. And thank you for having us on Strings Attached. This was so fun. And I can't wait for us to meet in person. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It was such a joy to speak with you, Pallavi. I'm so happy we got to know each other thanks to our podcasts. I invite you to listen to the Conscious Artist podcast. I will leave a link to it in the show notes. You could also find there a link to the podcast Facebook page or my Instagram page where you can comment or ask any question. You know, it's been a year since I launched this podcast and I feel that I should use this summer break to gather new ideas and thoughts about how to go on and here you listeners are needed. I would love to hear from you, your thoughts, ideas, guests you would love for me to host here. In the show notes, you could find a short form. I would really appreciate it if you took a moment to answer a few short questions. I'm Asaf Maoz, and thank you for listening to Strings Attached. Strings Attached